Well, good morning, Fellowship family. All right. Well, welcome. We are so glad that you are here worshiping with us this morning. My name is not Joshua, uh, by the way. It's John, and this is Wendy. I work with the adults here at Fellowship. Wendy works with the elementary students, and we are so glad to be here with you this morning. We are studying the book of Joshua, though. Um, so for this is the second week in a nine-week series we're going through the book of Joshua. In the, in the coming weeks, we're going to see Joshua lead God's people, the Hebrew people, into the promised land. It's going to be a great study. And if, if you want some further study, we've got Joshua journals for sale in the foyer. Or if you're tuning in online, you can, you can follow the link there and we, we'll get those to you. But uh, if, if you want to buy those in the foyer, you can see there, there's scriptures on one side and the journal for taking notes is on the other. It's a great way to kind of continue the resources and continue the study. Hey, if you're new, we are really excited. Whether you're here in person or tuning in online, we want to connect with you. And you can do that a couple ways. Um, if you're here in person, you grab one of us here on stage, or you can connect with the people who have the orange lanyards on, and we'll get you connected. If you're tuning in online or you want to you just connect uh, later, you can, you can uh, zoom in on the QR code, or you can always go to fellowshiprogers.org forward slash news, click the I'm new button, and you, we'll connect with you. We'll follow up with you. Now, here's the deal. Everything we talk about here in the service is available at fellowshiprogers.org forward slash news. Everything we talk about. So if you want to sign up for a service or you want to look at the additional resources or if you want to sign up for the family service. Is yes. that right, Wendy? Today at 4 o'clock, we are actually full for our reservations. However, if you are really hoping to come, we still want to say you might take that chance. Come in the foyer and wait and see if we have some seats available. Otherwise, you can watch us online. Um, this is a service geared for families to get to connect spiritually and um, connect emotionally, and it's just gonna be fun. So we hope you'll join us. Today, we are observing communion. So if you're at home, this is a good time to go and gather those elements for today. And if you're here and you haven't already gotten your prepackaged communion elements, you can find an usher, and they are back there too that you can go and grab those. Yeah, I think we have uh, communion available every, every Sunday in the prayer room as well. Hey, we are so excited that more and more of you are coming back and worshiping in person all the time. As we see the numbers, the numbers decrease, we see you, you all showing up more and more. And so we're so excited about that, especially at 9.30 and 11. We're having to overflow into the family center sometimes. So we want to remind you to reserve your seat. And that helps in a couple ways. That helps us manage the numbers, but also helps you to know what services are open. So this week, I was trying to think of a catchy way to remind us to, to reserve our seat or maybe to try the 8 a.m. service. There's lots of room at 8 a.m. And so I came up with a jingle. Uh, some people call it a ditty. Um, but you have to realize I'm one of the least or the most rhythmically challenged people on our staff. So I'm not very good. So I'm going to need a little help with this. Matter of fact, when I, when I said it to my wife this week, my wife who sat up on stage with me, remember a couple weeks ago and said, you need to, to fan into flame your, your spouse's gifts and passions. She said, don't do that. So she'll be surprised when she comes next service because I'm going to do it, but I need a little help. So Kyle, can you give me a beat? As the numbers decrease, we will open up more seats, but until then, you might try the 8 a.m. service. Is that good? Yeah. That's all the talent you're going to get out of me. So uh, you may do it again? No. Okay, no, 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 I won't do it again. Please don't ask me to. But seriously. We want you to reserve your seats. It helps with number management. We want you to try 8 a.m. if that helps out. We are so excited to open up more seats and for things to get back to normal. And as soon as it's deemed safe, we'll do that. Hey, Wendy, is there any way we can redeem this time? Yes, actually, today we have something really exciting. The Allen family is here because Cooper Allen, who's a third grader in Rogers, is getting baptized today. Um, yes, we are so excited. <laughs> I got to meet with Cooper and hear his story, and um, he's been ready to be baptized for quite a while, um, but his passion for the Lord is just really inspiring, and Cooper, I just, um, just want to encourage you and just say I cannot wait to watch you continue to grow as you're in the elementary ministry and um, watch your love for the Lord grow. The Allens are super special to us because um, Chris and Katie serve in the elementary ministry and they have for many years, and so we are grateful for them, and they are like superstars to us. So, um, can I pray for you guys? Lord, thank you so much 
for Cooper. Thank you for what you have done and are doing and will do in his life. Thank you for this moment that we get to celebrate. Lord, thank you um, that he has chosen you to follow you all his days. Lord, would you keep his eyes fixed on you? Lord, we are just grateful and excited for what you're doing and what you'll continue to do. Lord, would you be honored and blessed today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, fellowship. I, uh, my name is Chris Allen, and I'm very privileged this morning to be here uh, with my son, Cooper. Like Wendy said, he's a third grader here in Rogers. Um, Cooper came to know the Lord a couple years ago, uh, and in that time, he's really grown in his faith over the past couple years. We've been extremely proud. Uh, Cooper's also asked some very difficult questions during that time, and he's, he's gone to the Lord, and he's, he's asked for wisdom and answers and prayed and, and read his Bible, and, and we've been really blessed just to see the Lord answer those prayers and strengthen his faith. Um, so, Cooper, as we uh, stand here this morning, is it your testimony uh, that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? And do you, uh, are you committing this morning to follow him uh, for all of your life? Yes, sir. Well, then it is my joy then to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in the newness of life. Love you, brother. Well, what a way to start a service, to celebrate. Would you stand and sing this with us? Sing all my life.
I'm excited to be here with you this morning. My name is Kyle, and I'm one of the worship pastors here at Fellowship Rogers, and I am glad to see you this morning. I love that we started off our service celebrating baptism and what new life means. And this morning, I wanna invite you to just take your mind to the book of Joshua. If you can recall from last week, Sam reminded us that successful spirituality is rooted in God's promises and realized by courageous obedience. And if I'm being honest, when I think about courageous obedience, it sounds really hard and really scary for me to step out of my shell and do all of these things in the name of God. And friends, I have good news for you this morning. You don't. It's not our job to sit and do all of these things for God. And what we learn from the book of Joshua is that God is fighting for us. God is in control. What I'm learning this courageous obedience piece looks like is less like doing all of these things in the name of God, but more like just abiding in Him and trusting Him and watching Him do amazing things. And much like Moses' interaction with God, he reminds Joshua that he is the one who is in control. He's the one who is with them. And he's the one who's gonna tear down the wall. God is fighting his battle for his people. And God's extended the same invitation that he extends to Joshua to us. Abide, be with me, be in my presence. So this morning as we worship, I want to invite you just to process this and seeing as we celebrate God's faithfulness to be with his people.
in Jesus. Amen. This morning we get to sing a great hymn that's been sung for years and years. I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thy knowledge.
Revelation chapter 7 moment of all being seated together at your banquet, worshiping you with all different kinds of people. So Lord, may the name of Jesus be glorified this morning. And Father, would you begin to soften our hearts and work on our hearts this morning so that we would leave this place changed, so that we would leave this place as lights to the dark world. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, open your Bibles this morning to the book of Joshua. Today, we will hear our second installment in our nine-week series in this Old Testament narrative, Joshua, the sixth book of the Bible. You could summarize Joshua with this statement that Joshua tells a story. It's the story of God fulfilling a promise to the nation of Israel, his chosen people, to possess and dwell in the land of Canaan. And God promised this to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He promised this to Moses, and he promised it to the nation of Israel. The promise came in three waves, that they would become a numerous people, a great nation, that they would be blessed to be a blessing, and that they would dwell in a specific land. 
the land of Canaan, the promised land. And the book of Joshua tells the story of God fulfilling that promise. The book outlines really simply chapters one to five, entering the land. They'll cross the Jordan and go into the land. Chapters six to 12, conquering the land. And then 13 to 24, talks about the allocation of the land or possessing the land, each tribe having their portion. So after the exodus out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, and after the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years, and after the death of Moses, the Lord appointed a new leader in Israel, Joshua, son of Nun, aid to Moses. And his task lead them across the Jordan River and into the land. And last week we saw the Lord challenge Joshua with these words. It's the rally cry of the conquest. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors. So the conquest, the the journey into the land would require Joshua to not only receive it by the promise of God, but he would have to possess it by participating in the process. In fact, possessing the land would come at the intersection of God's promise and the nation's obedience. And it wouldn't be easy. In fact, it would require strength and courage. Now, the book of Joshua is going to offer us several iconic scenes or moments famous in biblical history. Next week, we will see the the waters of the Jordan part and pile up and the Israelites will cross the the great river. Uh, In coming weeks, we'll see the walls of Jericho, the mighty walls come tumbling down as the Israelites march around the city. We'll see a sword bearing angel of the Lord appear to Joshua just before a battle. And today, we're gonna see an iconic image. The scarlet cord of Rahab, which was hung from her window to signal the Israelite soldiers that she was marked for mercy. And we're gonna find that this was not only an iconic symbol or image for Rahab, it is for you and for me as well. So turn with me to Joshua chapter two. We'll look at the story of the promise to Rahab. Let's begin. Chapter two, verse one. It says, then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. So Joshua's first act of strategic leadership was to secretly send two spies across the Jordan River into the land on a clandestine reconnaissance mission. And they were to go into Canaan and gather some up-to-date intel on the land and especially the city of Jericho, which would be the site of their first battle. Now, does this move of sending spies into the promised land, sound familiar to anyone? Who else executed the same strategy? Well, it was Moses, Joshua's predecessor. Moses did the same thing. He sent 12 spies into the promised land to assess the strength of his adversaries. And Joshua follows a similar strategy upon entering the promised land. Now, I want you to get used to seeing comparisons and similarities between Joshua and Moses because the book of Joshua overtly and unashamedly compares these two leaders. In fact, last week in chapter one, verse five, we saw the Lord say, as I was with Moses, so I will be with Joshua. He tells us there's gonna be some similarities here. Let me show you several The book begins with the death of Moses, ends with the death of Joshua. Both are called servant of the Lord. Both are commissioned by the Lord. Both are asked to remove their sandals because 
They were standing on holy ground. We'll see that in chapter 5. Uh, Moses, he began the journey to the promised land when they left Egypt. Joshua finishes the journey to the promised land. The comparisons go on. Both sent spies into Canaan. Both crossed a body of water. Moses led the Israelites through the Red Sea. Joshua will lead them across the Jordan River. Both called for obedience to the law. Both dealt with sin in the camp. And both gave a farewell address. Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. Joshua in Joshua chapter 23 and 24. Joshua is presented in this book as Moses 2.0. And we will see this specifically today when he sent the spies into the land. Back to the story. The spies are undercover. So they want to go to a place that is discreet, where they could remain unknown. So it says they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The spies ended up staying at a, a tavern or an inn that was also a place of ill repute. Anonymity would have been the normal protocol here. So the spies probably felt like this would be a place where they could maintain their cover. And we're introduced here to a primary character in chapter two, a prostitute named Rahab. I want to make a couple of comments on this situation. First, the men staying there does not mean that they engaged in sinful acts. After all, they're on a mission from the Lord. They've just been commanded to follow the law of the Lord and not turn from it to the right or the left. And at the end of chapter one, they said, we will obey you. And if we don't, you may put us to death. So they're under a vow. They're on a mission. A second thought is that Rahab's title is what it is. But we don't need to sugarcoat it. She's not an innkeeper. This is not an Airbnb. Many want to whitewash Rahab's past. But the word means what it means. And there's no need to rewrite her story. In fact, I think that it will point to the greatness of God as Rahab is rescued in the story. Bible commentator David Jackman said this about Rahab. Her rescue is far more to the glory of God than any attempted whitewashing of her behavior. So we begin the story. We've got two, two spies staying at the home of a Canaanite woman who is a prostitute. Look at verse two. Their secret mission does not remain a secret for long. It says the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. So the undercover mission was out in the, ocean, uh, out in the open. Their identity, their purpose, and their location had been exposed. And the king of Jericho wanted the spies turned over to his authority. And so he pressured Rahab to become his informant. And at this point, it looks like the spies will be busted and that the mission will fail. But look at verse 4. In a surprising plot twist, Rahab the prostitute protects the spies. It says, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said to the king's Soldiers, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At, at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left, and I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly, and you may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under stalks of flax that she had laid out. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan, and as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the city gate was shut. So without announcing why, Rahab the Canaanite became the ally of the spies of Israel. She hid them and she lied for them. She defied the king's order to bring them out and concealed them instead. And she told two flat out lies that she did not know where the spies had come from. We'll see later in the story, that's not true. And that the men were no longer with her. They had already fled. And her plan worked. The king's men left to pursue the spies. They followed the advice of Rahab. They headed out of the city and into the desert to look for the undercover agents. Let me pause here. 
There are many uh, Christian ethicists that love to key in on the story of Rahab and discuss the ethical issues surrounding her lies. We'll actually see later in the sermon that the New Testament commends Rahab for helping the spies. Here are a few brief thoughts. First, my first thought is that her deceit lines up with what you might expect from an unbelieving pagan woman of ill repute. Lying was probably a norm for her lifestyle in order for her to survive. And even though she was advocating for the Lord's men, she did so using her pagan ways. Secondly, the New Testament authors do commend Rahab for her faith, not her lies. And for her kindness to taking in the spies, not her Deceit. Nowhere in the scripture does the Lord command us to lie. In fact, the scriptures tell us to do the opposite of that, to uphold the truth. Although there are a few instances of a character in the Bible lying to protect other lives. Well, back, back to the text. The story is almost comical at this point. We have secret spies who can't stay undercover. And officers of the king who were on a wild goose chase looking for men in the desert who were actually on Rahab's roof. Well, after the king's men left the city, they closed the city gates. And the spies now found themselves trapped in Jericho, behind enemy lines, hiding from the king on Rahab's roof. They were still alive, but their mission was in grave danger and jeopardy. And I'm left with the thought, why did Rahab do this? Why did she disobey the king? Why did she risk her life? life? Why did she aid her enemy? Well, actually, after things settled down that evening, Rahab went up on the roof to talk to the men and revealed her motives. And here's what we're going to see. The Lord's been doing a work in Rahab's heart. Look at verse 8. It says, before the spies laid down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. She goes on in verse 10. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sahan and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. And listen to this statement. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now, this is the very intel that the spies had come to discover. Rahab reveals that the people in the land of Canaan were living in fear because of the presence of the Israelites and the coming judgment of God on Jericho. So word on the street was that the people had lost their courage and were melting in fear. So outwardly, Jericho is going to look like this strong and fortified city surrounded by this mighty wall, but inwardly the city was crumbling in fear. And Rahab recounted what God had done in the past, what God was doing in the present, and she confessed her belief of what would happen in the future. Rahab believed in a favorable outcome for Israel. And then she went way further than that. Look at that last statement, that last part of verse 11, that your God is the God of heaven and the God of earth. And note here that she used the personal name of God. Let me remind you something about your English Bible. There are three Hebrew words used in the Old Testament for Lord. And when it uses the most holy name of God, Yahweh, the English translators put it in all caps. Do you see that on the screen? L-O-R-D. It's to let you know they're using the most personal name of God. I am that I am, Yahweh. When it's Adonai or Elohim, it'll use a capital L and a lowercase L-O-R-D. And so Rahab is professing here belief in the God of Israel. So in this rooftop conversation, under the cloak of darkness, Rahab reveals why 
she is helping them. This woman Canaanite of ill repute has come to believe in the God of Israel. She confesses it here with her mouth, but she has shown it with her actions. And then she asks the men to show her mercy when God's judgment comes on Jericho. Look at verses 12 and 13. Now then, please swear to me by Yahweh that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother and brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. She asked for mercy for her household when the wrath of God came to Jericho. Please show your kindness to me, she said, because I have shown kindness to you. She asked them to save her, to, to keep her safe from death. And not having a trusting relationship with them, she not only asked for an oath or a promise, she also asked for a sign. She needed some assurance from them because her life was on the line. And in verse 14, we have the first words in the story from the spies. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was a part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves for three days until they return and then go on your way. So the spies here make an oath with Rahab. They make a, a promise to her to spare her when the Lord gives Jericho into their hands. And because her house was a part of the city wall, she was enabled to help them with their escape, even though the city gates had been closed for the evening. She lowered them down and gave them instructions. Now, verses 17 to 21 are actually a flashback to a conversation that Rahab had with these spies on the roof and we're going to read it in just a moment. I want to skip to 22 to 24 to close out the story. Now, I know this is going to rub some of you type A people crazy. You're going to get hives at this point. Chill. Stick with me. We're in church. I'm not going to lie to you. I will cover this in just a moment. Go to 22 to 24. When they left, speaking of the spies who had been let down by the rope, they went to the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills. They crossed the Jordan River and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. So after hiding out and after crossing the river, they reunited with Joshua and delivered the intel from their not so secret reconnaissance mission to Jericho. And the report was better than expected. It was just as the Lord had promised in chapter one, the Canaanites would not be able to stand against them. And according to the spies, victory seemed inevitable. So Joshua has been commissioned by the Lord. He has the promise of the Lord. He has the presence of, Lord, of the Lord. And now he has a favorable scouting report. They're ready to begin the conquest. And next week, when we pick the story up, we'll see the Israelites cross the Jordan and go into the land. But we're not done today. And we've got plenty of time. I want to return to verses 17 to 21. I want us to hear this rooftop conversation between Rahab and the spies. And in the conversation, we'll see the conditions of their promises to one another, but we're also going to see that iconic image, the scarlet cord emerge. Back to 17. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made, made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother and your brothers and all your family into your house. So Rahab was told to mark her home as safe from the coming destruction. She was to tie a, a scarlet cord in her window, signaling that she was to be spared and to be shown mercy. This was the sign 
that she requested to be accompanying their oath. The second condition, tie the cord in the window, was that her family would remain sheltered with her in her own home. They couldn't be out in the streets in the middle of the fight. Verse 19 continues the conditions, repeating the shelter in place order and adding one more. It says, if any of them, your family, go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. But as for those who are in your house, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. And here's the third condition. But if you tell them what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. And she sent them away. This is the point where she lowered them down to the ground. And they departed to return to Joshua. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. So the conditions were set, responsibilities assigned. In addition to the scarlet cord tied in the window and the order to shelter in her home during the battle, the final condition was that Rahab must remain secretive about her partnership with the Israelites. All agreed, and after they departed, she tied the cord in her window. Believing that the judgment of God was coming, Believing that the God of Israel would save her from destruction. Believing that she was marked for mercy and not for wrath. Now, does this story, this promise to Rahab, this scarlet cord marking her home as safe, sound familiar to anyone? The judgment of God coming on Jericho, his wrath being poured out on the city, but Rahab's house would be spared because it was marked. It had a signal in scarlet, a beacon to show God she was marked for mercy. Can you think of a similar situation in Israel's past? that reflects this exact same scenario. Well, what about the Passover? God's judgment coming on Egypt. The Lord judged Egypt through 10 plagues. The 10th one was the worst. It was the death of the firstborn in each home. Unless it was marked for mercy. Well, how was it marked for mercy? By the blood of a lamb spread on the doorframe of the home. It speaks of it in Exodus chapter 12. When Yahweh, the Lord, passes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, that home. He will not permit the destroyer to enter the houses and strike them down. It's a very similar circumstance. And not only does Rahab's scarlet cord look backwards into the Israelite history, it looks forward. Does it sound familiar? Well, what about the cross? Romans 5.9 says, Since now we have been justified by this scarlet blood, the thread of redemption, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? The story goes like this. The judgment is coming upon the sins of mankind. Romans chapter one. We all stand guilty. Romans chapter three. We've all messed up. None are righteous. But Romans five, those who are marked by the blood of Jesus offered for us on the cross will be shown mercy on the day of wrath. Marked by the scarlet blood of the lamb. Just like Rahab, the promise of mercy is extended to you and to me. Let me finish the story. We don't hear about Rahab again until the battle of Jericho. So I'm going to jump forward and steal just one verse from Mark Schatzman, who will teach Joshua chapter six. That's the privilege of going first. The Israelites take Jericho. And Joshua instructs them to look for the, the scarlet cord to find Rahab's house and save anyone who's in it. And it says this, but Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her 
because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And listen to this part. She lives among the Israelites to this day. So not only was Rahab spared from destruction, she and her family were actually assimilated into the family of God and became a part of the nation of Israel. This is a very unlikely story in one of the great life change stories of the Old Testament that Rahab, a pagan, unbelieving, Canaanite woman, a person who made her living in a way that was a constant offense to God, a person at ease with telling lies and defying kings, yet God chose to rescue her. Some would even say that the spies were sent to rescue Rahab more than to garner intel on Jericho. Barbara and Kelly wrote a great blog article on it on the Gospel Coalition website. This is a great quote. Joshua didn't need a strategy for Jericho. God would give him an extraordinary plan for taking the city. God sent the spies to save Rahab and her family. It reminds me of a very strong truth in the scriptures that no one is beyond the redemptive reach of the Lord. No one is too lost to be found. No one is too far from God's rescuing hand. Regardless of your past, regardless of your upbringing, regardless of your reputation, regardless of your mistakes, in spite of your bad decisions or your bad habits or your bad behaviors, the Lord can do a mighty work in your life. Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save those who are what? Lost. And Rahab's story gets even more surprising. She wasn't just spared from death. She didn't just become a member of the nation of Israel. Her story has been shared for thousands of years, and she's actually featured three different times in the New Testament. One of them's in Hebrews chapter 11. If, if you know Hebrews chapter 11, many Bible commentators call this the hall of faith. It's a collection of, of names and stories of heroes of, of the Bible, people like Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joseph, and guess who else? Rahab the prostitute is in Hebrews 11, hall of faith. It says this about her. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. She shares good company in that chapter. James chapter two. This is James' infamous argument that faith has to work itself out in actions. She uses, he uses two examples in, in James chapter two. One is Abraham. As a Hebrew, James would have had solid ground just to argue that Abraham was an example. But look who he goes to for a second example. Rahab. James says, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And if that's not enough, the third one is actually shocking. So when I put it up, I need you to gasp. Rahab's in the genealogy of Jesus. That's pretty good. This is mind-blowing. That a Canaanite, pagan woman of ill repute is the great-great-grandmother of King David. And Jesus is the son of who? The son of David. Now think about the grace and the mercy of God that Rahab ends up in Jesus' bloodline. So for those of you who walk in shame, who are haunted by the sin of your past, you need to understand that the gospel teaches that we are all wretched sinners, but none of us are beyond his redemptive reach. We are all saved by the mercy and grace of God. We all, like Rahab, cling to the scarlet cord of redemption that's found in Jesus. And then once justified, 
and forgiven and declared righteous and clean. We aren't second-class citizens in the family of God. Amen? Your story does not disqualify you for being used by God. No one is beyond the redemptive reach of the Lord. And guess what? That even includes you. Because I know that there are people who are here today and watching online who feel far from God. You either don't know him or you've been distanced from him for some time. And maybe you walk in shame because of your past. Or maybe your current choices aren't glorifying to God. And you don't feel like that God could ever love you or forgive you, that you'll never measure up, that you'll never be an insider in the church or the family of God. And I want you to hear today that God hates sin, but he loves you. And it's true. The wrath of God is coming on the sins of mankind. You don't believe me? Watch the news tonight. And at the same time, it's true that God has offered the shed blood of Jesus. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So I want to give you an invitation this morning to either come to Jesus or to come home to Jesus. To mark your house, your heart, with the scarlet cord of redemption. Would you pray with me? And if you don't know Jesus, pray this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Lord, I beg you to spare me from your wrath. I turn from my sin and I believe in your son's shed blood on the cross. And I want to follow you all the days of my life. For those of you who feel distant from God, come home to him this morning, repentant and believing. Well, Lord, Oh, thank you for the reminder this morning that none are too lost to be found. Lord, I pray that right now through your spirit that you would put a name on our heart, a neighbor, a coworker, a friend who's far from God that needs to hear about his redemptive work. Lord, would you use us to share the message that we're covered by that redemptive thread? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what better way to remember the shed blood of Jesus than coming to the Lord's table? So if you've got your communion elements, you can go ahead and work through that, pulling the lid off the top, taking the wafer and then the juice. I'll come back up in a moment and we'll share that together as a family.
Jesus said he never wanted us to forget that. So regularly he said, focus on my, my person and my work. And remember that you're saved by my grace and my mercy. So we come to the table shoulder to shoulder in the room and shoulder to shoulder online. And we remember his body broken for you. Take and eat. His blood scarlet thread of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. And it's only by this that we're saved. We take, we drink, we remember. Well, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would bless us so that we could be a blessing to others. And Lord, there's no greater blessing than you've given us than the blood of Jesus to give us a clean slate in life. So Lord, I pray as we leave this place and we go out there to interact with those that we live with and work with and play with, Lord, that you would use us to share the gospel message, the story of forgiveness with others. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, if you receive Christ today and you'd like to talk to someone about it, or if you'd like prayer for anything, our prayer room is open. For those of you online, we love you. We can't wait to see you soon. Thanks, fellowship.